right, well, let us go ahead and go into our teaching for this morning. We are going to be in 2 Samuel today. We're continuing in our series on the life of David. We are now in the, uh, in the period of David's life where he is uh, finally king over part of Israel, uh, but there is more opposition to his kingdom, and so that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be in 2 Samuel uh, in chapter 2. So as I said, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 2 this morning. If you want to turn there. Once you find 2 Samuel 2, just go ahead and put your thumb there, because we're actually not going to read it right now. We're looking at a really big portion of Scripture today. So what we're going to do, uh, we've done this at times in the past where we look at a really big section. So I I think the best way to do this is to, uh, I'll, I'll just read you key passages as we go through it. So just hold your thumb there. Uh, but like I said, we're going to be looking at a big portion today, whereas we usually just look at a smaller section. But why is it good to do that? You know, have you guys in your own personal Bible reading time, devotion, or just in some kind of Bible study, have you ever gone through and read a really large portion of Scripture at a time? I mean, especially like reading a whole book at a time. Now, if that's, if that's third John, that's not that long. Right? Or if that's Jude, it's not that long to read a whole book at, at a time. But maybe if you've ever sat down and read all of Genesis at one time, or if you've, instead of, uh, we, you know, we usually work really, really slowly through the Sermon on the Mount, but have you ever just read the three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount all together at once? It can be a really, really beneficial exercise to do that from time to time. We very much frequently, I think, do small portions, and we focus on details, and that, that's good and great. That's, how, that's one of the ways that we uh, dig deeper into God's Word. But it can also be incredibly helpful to read large portions of Scripture at a time, because whenever we do that, we start to see things happening. We start to pick up on themes, and we start to see ways that God is working through the narrative of Scripture that we might have missed before if we were uh, only reading uh, in the details and small pieces at a time. It makes you think of that phrase, sometimes it's easy to miss the forest for the trees, right? And so that's why it's a good idea to every now and then take in the force of Scripture. Like I said, read a, read a big section to see what God is doing through all of it, or, or maybe the themes that hold that section together. And so that's one of the reasons that we're going to be taking this next section all in one big chunk, because I think it helps us to better see uh, what is happening here in terms of the themes and then uh, of the story, and then also what God is doing through all of it. In these two chapters that we're going to be looking at today, which is um, the majority of chapter 2, we already looked at the beginning of it a couple weeks ago, but chapter 2 and chapter 3, in these two chapters, we're going to learn how, how there is resistance to the kingdom of God, but yet cannot stop it. That's the big theme that we're going to see throughout all these, these little episodes that are packed together in these two chapters how there's resistance to the kingdom of God, but the kingdom cannot be stopped. So we're going to look at resisting the kingdom, subverting the kingdom, uh, subverting the kingdom, and then lastly, expecting the kingdom. All right? Let's start with resisting the kingdom. So if you follow the news or if you follow current events very much, then you know that one of the, the major headlines lately and something that I'm sure we, we've all been following to one degree or another, is this, this potential crisis or issue that's happening on, uh, between Russia and Ukraine. 
If you've been following it, then you, then you remember uh, that, that Putin and Russia sent troops right up to the border of Ukraine, and they've got a huge army, and they're just sitting right there on the border, right there on the edge, just there. And everybody is rightly kind of nervous about that, right? Because it seems to be sort of an antagonistic move. It seems to be a move that while it's not an all-out attack, it's saying, like, who's going to go first? Something really, really similar is happening in 2 Samuel chapter 2. Something almost identical. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army and now is basically leading a rival kingdom to David's kingdom, has gathered up his army and brought them right down to the border of David's southern kingdom in a very antagonistic move. And a move very similar, like I said before, that we even see until this day, right up to this spot where he said, who's going to go first? Trying to provoke an attack. Let's read about it. We can see it in uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. It says, Abner, son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Saul's son Ishbosheth and moved him to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Asher, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, over all Israel. Saul's son Ishbosheth was 40 years old when he became king over Israel. He reigned for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The length of time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, son of Ner, and soldiers of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, marched out from uh, Mahanaim to Gibeon. So Joab, son of Zariah, and David's soldiers marched out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. The two groups took up positions on opposite sides of the pool. Now, I'm not sure how many of you guys are really well brushed up on your ancient Israel geography, okay? But Gibeon was a place that was, like I said before, almost like right on the border between the, the northern kingdom, which is where Abner and his puppet king Ishbosheth uh, had established their reign, and the southern border where David had established his reign with his headquarters being at Hebron. This place where, where they, the two armies had met up was only five miles away from Jerusalem, which was going to be the one-day uh, headquarters, right, uh, the, the capital of Israel and the headquarters of David's kingdom. So like I said, they, they, he marches down to meet them right on the border. So David's army, which is led by a general named Joab, go out there to meet them. And here it says they take sides on the opposite, on the opposite ends of, it says pool, but that means some kind of a small body of water, right? And so here they have their positions against one another. And Abner comes up with an idea. He, he proposes something. He says, hey, look, how about instead of an all-out battle, let's just each choose uh, let's just each choose some of our best soldiers, some of our mightiest young men, and have them go out there to have a contest between the two of us. Now, they weren't playing a game, okay? They didn't go out there and play soccer. By contest, he meant something a little bit more brutal, something to more akin to the, the gladiatorial games, right? But that, that's what he's saying. Instead of our whole armies fighting, let them have a contest. Let's just send some of our men out there, and whoever wins between them will decide the fate of this battle instead of all of us going against each other. And so Joab says that's not a bad deal. And so they each choose their men. It says that the men all go out there, the, these mighty warriors, and they all die. It says they all got there, they grab one another, thrust their swords into one another. In, in other words, it's, it's a tie. They, they all, it's a pretty bizarre situation, really. But all the men who go out there are killed. And so what ends up happening, since there's no clear winner, is then the armies go in and clash. 
They attack one another. You now have an all-out civil war happening within Israel. But David's army, uh, as usual, is far, far superior. They're mightier. They are better warriors, better fighters. And so they inflict heavy casualties against Abner's army, and they end up fleeing. Abner has to run away, and he's end up, he ends up being chased by this man named, uh, uh, what is it again? Asahel. He ends up being chased by this man named Asahel, who was Joab's brother, right? Joab the general, his brother Asahel was chasing Abner. Abner couldn't get away. He kept warning him, don't chase me, or else I'm going uh, to have to fight you. But he, he refuses to quit. So Abner finally turns, and he strikes him down with his spear. David's men, led by Joab, they keep uh, uh, pursuing Abner and their army until they finally come to a place where they decide, Abner says, can we just stop? Like, it, it, essentially, he throws up a white flag. He says, you have us cornered. Can we, just, can we just end the battle here? And Joab says, okay, fine. We'll end the battle here because civil war is, is ugly, right? Th- this is ugly. So we'll, we'll stop here. And that's essentially where this little episode stops. But it is the beginning of a civil war within Israel. But why has this war broken out? Why has the war broken out? Why is it that brother against brother and Israel against Israelite fought against one another and there was much bloodshed? Well, here's why. Ultimately, why? Because Abner knew the promise of God but refused to accept it. Abner and everyone else in Israel, it was not a secret that David was going to be the next king over Israel, that God had moved his anointing in his kingdom from the house of Saul to the house of David. Saul died in battle years before this. You remember that at the end of the book of 1 Samuel. Saul dies. So along with Saul's death is, should be the end of Saul's reign. But Abner, who was the commander of his army, knew the implications of what it meant to uh, to no longer have the house of Saul reigning over Israel, and for there to instead now be a new king with a new dynasty and a new house. He knew that meant that had certain implications for him. Implications for him, not just career-wise, but also implications for him now having to submit to a new king. Him having to submit to God's anointed king. You see, Abner set up this puppet king, Ishbosheth, and rallied together all the other tribes of Israel for this simple reason, because he could not submit to God's word. He could not submit to God's word. He chose his own way instead. He did not want to have to uh, follow after another king. He wanted to remain in charge. So he saw an opportunity. That's why he set up Ishbosheth, and that is what ultimately then leads to this civil war breaking out and all this bloodshed and, and the, the battle between uh, these Israelites because Abner will not submit. Here's our big point. The kingdom of God is resisted by those who refuse to obey the king. The kingdom of God is resisted by those who refuse to obey the king. When we look around in our world today, we are still surrounded by, and we can see, many Abners. There are still many Abners in our world today. Men and women, leaders, business owners, uh, politicians, and whoever else who refuse to submit to the kingdom of God. And though they might even God's word and some of God's truth, they reject the truth, as it says in Romans chapter 1. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness and instead choose to follow uh, gods of their own making or gods of their own mind or the God of themselves. 
We are still to this day surrounded and live in a world of Abners. People who resist the kingdom of God ultimately, even sometimes even to the point of violence, ultimately because of this, because they do not want to submit to God as their king. When we look around in our world today, and even just American culture or Western culture, you know, our headlines every day, there's international affairs going on, but very often what's driving our headlines is culture wars, right? We could point out all these different types of culture wars that we see. There's culture wars, and there's political scandals, and there are all these debates happening. And it can be really easy to get caught up in what I call the political illusion, to get caught up in this idea that, that all of our culture wars are really just political problems, that the, that the problem beneath it and the solution to it is to change our politics, to change the party in control, or to change the, a leader of a party that is in control, and then that is what will fix it. Because in the political illusion, that is the perception that you're given, that it's all ultimately politics, and politics will fix it. And that's what the media spin wants you to think as well. They want you to think that all of our problems can be solved by just the right leaders, the right politicians in power, or the right uh, political platforms being pushed in, in society. But you must resist, number one, the political illusion, and, number two, and understand that ultimately, beneath all of our culture wars, whichever one comes into your mind, because there's a lot, and there's a new one every day, beneath all of our culture wars, and beneath maybe not all, but many of our political scandals and debates is this those who are resisting to submit to God as king. That is ultimately what is beneath it all. I know that some people think that it might be old and cliche to say that what it really all is is a spiritual battle. But let me just say, though it might be cliche, it is true. It is true. Ultimately, it is a spiritual battle. Ultimately, there is a, there is a war over worship in our country. And will people worship and submit to God as king, or will they worship and submit to their own ideas and their own agendas? They refuse to submit to the king, and they refuse to submit to Christ. Like I said before, Christians who understand the times well understand that this is what is beneath all of the controversies that we see today. And let me encourage you, don't fall for the political illusion that says that one leader or even a party or a platform will be the solution to it all. Don't fall for the media spin that goes along with all of it, but understand this, that it is a war over will it be the kingdom of God or the kingdom of man. What does this mean for us practically? It means this. You need to know the truth and submit to it. You need to know the truth and submit to it. Abner was a man who knew the truth of the promise of God's word for David's reign. He knew it, but he refused to submit to it. And it is very easy and very possible for us, friends, though we are not commanders of armies or warriors, though we're just everyday people, right? It is very possible and sometimes all too easy to know God's truth and yet to not submit to it. We can be just like Abner, we can be just like all, when we look at all the problems that we have in the world, like I said, when we look at all the culture wars and we see some of the major voices that are driving it and say, oh, those people who refuse to submit to God, sometimes they may not even know God's word. So what does that say for us who knows God's word, who know God's word and 
very often resist it in our own disobedience. In our own, we, we who know the truth and yet suppress it in our own unrighteousness very often. What does that say for us? Friends, we need to be the kind of people who never want to know God's truth. So if there's an area of life where we don't know God's truth and what his word says, then we need to be informed. We need to search the scriptures. We need to find wise counsel who can help us to, to know what is God's truth and God's will for this area and that area of life. Know it, but then follow it and submit to it. And when we catch ourselves not following and instead resisting to repent and go back to, go back to Christ right, and go back in obedience to God. Let's continue along with the story. We looked at how there was subversion of the kingdom, but there was, or I'm sorry, resistance of the kingdom. There's also a subversion of the kingdom happening here in this story. And this is something that we start to see happening once we move later on into chapter 3. So this civil war breaks out. There's this great battle. We go on to chapter 3, and it, it says this in verses, uh, um, chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. It says, During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner kept acquiring more power in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, daughter of uh, Ai, and Ishbosheth questioned Abner, "Why did you sleep with my father's concubine?" Abner was very angry about Ishbosheth's accusation. "Am I a dog's head who belongs to Judah?" he asked. "All this time I've been loyal to the family of your father Saul, to his brothers and to his friends, and haven't betrayed you to David." But now you accuse me of wrongdoing with this woman. May God punish Abner and do so severely if I don't do for David what the Lord swore to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish the throne of David over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Ishbosheth did not dare respond to Abner because he was afraid of him. So you see, here's what's happening. Like I said, from the beginning, Ishbosheth, who was this one of the only remaining sons of Saul who there are no inclinations that this guy was worth much of anything, okay? He was the perfect subject to be a puppet king for Abner, to just sit there and let Abner stay in control and, 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 and be quiet. So that's what they have going on here. But Abner continues to grow in power. And maybe even among the people, they're starting to see that Abner is really the one who is control, in control, and it is not Ishbosheth. It is not still the house of Saul. And so they come to this point to where, whether it's because Abner really did take one of Saul's concubines, or whether it was just because Ishbosheth was, uh, was incredibly paranoid, like his father was, he accuses Abner of taking one of his father's concubines. Now, here's the significance of that. We might hear that and say, it's kind of icky, right? And it is. That's not Ishbosheth's problem. He had no problem with There was a lot of ickiness that they didn't have a problem with. Here's why he didn't like that. Because if Abner was to, especially publicly, take Rizpah, who was this concubine, as his own, what that was communicating to all, to all the tribes was, is it's not Ishbosheth, but it is me who is your worthy ruler. Because there was this custom back in the day, uh, back then, that whenever a new king, especially even if it was the son of a king, would take over after his father's uh, previous reign, he would take his father's wives into his harem, okay? And what this was, was really more of a political statement than anything else, because they had this idea that if the king can take care of, 
protect and provide for his wife, then that is a symbol of his ability to provide for, protect, and serve the kingdom as a whole. Does that make sense? Do you see that? So this is why the accusation, whether it was true or whether it wasn't true, it doesn't say for it doesn't tell us for sure, was so important because Abner had been making moves, like I said, whether he took risk or not, he had been making moves to say and set himself up as though he was the real and true king. Ishbosheth makes this accusation against him, and for some reason, it was just the straw that broke the camel's back with Abner. He looks around himself and he says, you know what? I'm too old for this. This is enough. Whether it's because he felt some sense of betrayal by the accusation or because he was just sick of trying to manage this puppet king, he says, you know what? I've had enough. And, he's, and so he calls this curse down upon himself. He says, may the Lord do severely to, to me if I do not carry out what he said for David. So here's the thing. Did Abner have a change of heart here? Did Abner have a change of heart where he finally came to accept God's word and to follow it? Not really. It doesn't look like that, right? It's, it instead looks like he's just fed up and maybe he's come up with another plan that could work out even better for himself. Because what he does is, is he carries out exactly what he said. He leaves Ishbosheth. He goes down. He sends some delegates to David saying, I'm ready to make peace. Let's end the civil war. Let's make a covenant between us to end it peacefully. And David jumps at the opportunity. David does not want a bloody civil war. He wants to end the conflict with peace. So he jumps at the opportunity, and they come together, and they make a covenant with one another that, of course, is going to have uh, some, some good promises for Abner on the other side of that covenant. So once again, if you take the, all this situation into, into context and think about it, does it seem as though Abner was now excited and had repented and was ready to follow God? Or instead, like he might have just had something else in mind. They make the covenant, and Abner goes away in peace. And then Joab you remember Joab? He was the, he's the commander of David's army whose brother was killed in battle by Abner. Joab hears about this. He had, been out, uh, and he had been out fighting. He comes back and he hears about this, that David had made peace, and he's furious. He's furious about it. So he chases down Abner because Abner had already left. He chases him down. He says, I want, I want him to come back and tell him that he's coming in peace. We're all good. He has nothing to worry about. And so Abner returns to the city. Joab comes, and he, he pulls him aside to a place that no one else can see them, acting as though he wants to talk to him privately, and there he assassinates Abner. It's a, it's a brutal scene. It's an ugly scene. Here you have Joab, by, by all um, indications, was a young warrior in his prime, and Abner, who was a generation older than Saul. This was, a, this was an old man being attacked and assassinated by this young man here. Supposedly, because he was avenging his brother's death. But even with him, we can question his motives and say, was, was Joab really, really driven to avenge his brother's death, or was he upset about the implications for his job whenever Abner was now in their kingdom? Because Joab was a great warrior. Abner was a legend. So if there's not going to be peace between them in this covenant, and he's going to be in David's kingdom, that most likely means He's going to have a nice position over Joab. And maybe Joab doesn't like the sound of that. So maybe he has a couple of motives. Revenge, but also concern for himself. 
we have a really interesting parallel between these two men, these warriors, these two men who both see David's future kingdom as an opportunity for selfish gain. Abner was not driven by repentance and a true change of heart and mind. He just wanted to set up a cozy uh, retirement for himself in David's new kingdom. Joab as well, most likely was not just driven by revenge for his brother's death because early in chapter 2, he seemed pretty okay with it to call off the battle. Instead, now he really seems more uh, motivated by concern for his own position. So here you have two men both attempting to subvert the kingdom for their own gain. They saw the kingdom not as something as glorious, true, as ordained by God, and so therefore they should submit their lives to, but instead something that they could get something out of. Here's our big point for this section. The kingdom of God is seen as useful to those who will subvert it for selfish gain. The kingdom of God is seen as useful to those who will subvert it for selfish gain. Abner's concern, which seemingly came out of the blue and and in a moment of great frustration, came only whenever he saw an opportunity to benefit himself. Joab's Joab's assassination of Abner, though on the surface looked like revenge, once again was really a great opportunity to benefit himself. Both these men see the kingdom as something they, they can just use for themselves. Likewise, Christian men and women today need to be on alert and look out for the temptation to have a mentality where we uh, only see doing God's work for what we can get out of it. We can do the very same thing today. Whenever we look at God's kingdom, whenever we look at the ministry, whenever we look at serving in our church or doing other acts of good works, and we are motivated more by, for, by what we can get out of doing these works and this ministry rather than a joyful obedience to Christ. Though we are not these ancient warriors, like I've said before, though we are not like them, we can be motivated by some of the very same things. Dale Ralph Davis, the, the scholar, said, And even faithful preachers, for example, who desire to proclaim and uh, and make plain God's truth. Know there are times when they seem more concerned with whether God's people will be impressed with them, like them, congratulate and dote over them. It's obvious to see how how preachers can be drawn to that temptation, but friends, we all can. We're all soldiers in God's army, but sometimes it's easy for us to start acting like mercenaries instead. That's for what we can get out of it. Abner and Joab are both like the disciples who were at Jesus' table at the Last Supper, who in the midst of him serving them and explaining what he was about to do for them and the kingdom that he was going to be inaugurating for them, they began to start arguing about who would be the greatest in that kingdom. Friends, we can be the exact same way. None of us are above that temptation. None of us are immune to that mentality or have it completely defeated. It's something that we must be on guard for. And so what this means for us is watch out for your own tendencies to use the kingdom. Watch out for your own tendencies to use the kingdom. For some of you guys who are working in ministry and doing, uh, doing things that you know, we call ministry, whether it's in the church or outside of the church, watch out for your own tendencies for, as that quote said before, to do things so that people might be impressed with you Right, and congratulate you versus, versus bringing glory to God. 
And even if you aren't in ministry, we can be motivated by very similar motivations just in the opportunities that you have for good work in your life. And the opportunities that you have in your life to be a, a witness and to be an obedient disciple in your workplace, at school, in your neighborhood, we can sometimes be driven by desire, whether it's to be shown as, uh, that we're right, whether it's to be seen and perceived as good and moral as those around us, or to get some kind of congratulatory remarks and pats on the back. Whether you're a ministry or not, whether you're an uh, Israelite commander or not, this is something that can be true for us all. And so be on guard. Watch out for it. Because it can be subtle, and sometimes we can even deceive ourselves. So we've looked at how there's resistance to the kingdom of God. There are those, even sometimes we might be tempted to do so, who might try to subvert the kingdom of God for our own selfish gain. Throughout these chapters in 2 and 3, and I encourage you guys to go home later today and read them all uh, read all the stories, because there's a lot of details that I had to skip over, and I want you guys to get the full picture here, which I'm, I'm trying to give you the full picture, so I want you to go and read it for yourself later. Throughout these two chapters, we see resistance to the kingdom, uh, attempts at the use of force to stop the kingdom and to, and to quash it. We see those who try to subvert the kingdom. We see all of this, this resistance, this subversion, and this opposition. However, at the end, we marvel that God still brings his word to pass for David. After Joab assassinates Abner and David hears about it, he tears his clothes. He is, he, he is, uh, he is extremely distressed over what Joab has done. Because not only had he done something wicked by, by assassinating Abner, but also because of how it could have potentially derailed the path that they had just made to a peaceful unification of the kingdom. He tears his clothes. He leads a funeral procession mourning Abner's death. And so that puts them in a situation where, like I said, the kingdom could have been derailed. Things could have really gone south after this uh, and broken that peace deal that they have made. But as we're going to see and continue on, we're going to see that throughout the resistance, throughout the subversions, throughout the, the actions of all these different fallen men, none of it could stop God's kingdom. Right after this, Israel, they saw Joab's assassination for what it was. They still unite behind David, and David's kingdom is, uh, is, is brought about according to God's promise. In the end, we see that nothing stops David's kingdom. And that's something that we should marvel at. Not just in these two chapters, but if you've been following along with us in this series, all that has been going on in David's life up until this point. Fighting a giant Goliath, the, the Philistine, his, his wars with uh, Philistines after that, his ongoing struggles and running through the wilderness away from the tyrant Saul, this civil war that is now broken out, potentially subverted at a subversion of peace by a general being assassinated. Through it all, David's kingdom is still brought about according to God's word. There's a scholar named uh, Carl Gutbrud, and he said that what happened for David was according to God's decree and sworn promise, but not because Abner lent God his arm, but because God, against and without Abner, makes the deed to follow his word. So here's what I want us to end and see. We read large portions of Scripture so that we can see what is the big theme of this, and here's the big theme. Despite all that opposition, despite all that resistance and subversion, the kingdom of God 
cannot be stopped. That is what I want us to get away from this story. The kingdom of God cannot be stopped. We see that in the life of David. But we might look at our lives today and say, sure, there was a lot against David, but how much more is there against the kingdom of God today? How much more opposition? How much more resistance? How many more Abners are there out there today who are using force to try to stop the kingdom of God? Through persecution we see around the world and, 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 and other moves of power that we might see even in our own culture here. How can we know that the kingdom won't be stopped today? Here's how we can know without a shadow of a doubt. Because even all of the opposition and resistance that we face today is still not the height of the kingdom of man raging against the kingdom of God. That has already happened. The height of the kingdom of man raging and fighting and trying to stop the kingdom of God was in Jesus' trial and crucifixion. This was the attempt of the enemy and, 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 and all of his servants to try to uh, end and, and stop and prevent what God was doing through Jesus, his son, and king. An attempt to stop God's plan of redemption and rescue deliverance for the world. But even at the height of of the kingdom of man's opposition and resistance to the kingdom of God, through it, God accomplished his purpose. That's what Peter said in Acts chapter 2. He said, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. You see, he says God was in control the whole time. And then he says, God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. What confidence do we have? What security can we uh, entrust our lives to? That this kingdom of God, which we are citizens of by the blood of Christ and the gift of God's grace, will continue on. That despite any resistance of the world and despite any disobedience of our hearts, we cannot be kicked out of the kingdom, pulled out of the kingdom, removed from the kingdom, and it will not be squashed by this world. Our assurance is this, is that even when the world rages against God's kingdom, as Peter said, it all happens according to his plan. Isn't that incredible? Even when they rage, he is accomplishing his purpose. And even when it seems as though they have won, what did he say? He said, death cannot win. Because death cannot hold our king down. And if death cannot hold our king down, friends, no matter what losses we might think we experience today, even the loss of death itself, because Jesus lives, because our Savior lives, because he reigns, Death does not have the final word. Any cultural setbacks is not the final word. Any losses in your, in your family, set, setbacks in just your, your attempts at uh, righteous obedience in the kingdom, those do not have the final word. Why? Because our king still reigns. So take comfort in that. Take comfort in that whenever you are weary, whenever you're tempted to quit, Whenever you're tempted to cynicism and despair, take comfort and remember that as long as Jesus is, stands in victory over death, there is nothing, no loss that could um, beat his work now. So take comfort and then 
Also, take courage. Take comfort and then take courage to continue doing the work that you were called to, to continue living out the acts of good works which God has prepared for you. Continue to do the good work that he's called you to in your job and career, in, in your job as a parent, in your job as a spouse, in your job as a student, and in whatever God has called you to do in our church community. Continue in those things as well courageously. Why? Because we know that our king reigns. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we praise you, Lord, for the good news and the message that we can find even in these ancient stories that maybe on the surface seem so removed from us. Lord, they're far from boring, but they're sometimes difficult to connect to our lives. And so, Lord, I thank you that you make it plain to us through your spirit and, and, and by the help of your word and your servants. So, Father, let us be encouraged today to watch out and guard our hearts for the ways that we resist the kingdom, for the ways that we try to use the kingdom, and for the ways and times that we are tempted to give up, whether it's because we think that we have disqualified ourselves in our own disobedience or because the opposition of the kingdom of man is just too strong. Let us take comfort in our king who conquered death itself. Inspire our hearts to be filled with courage, driven by the love that you have poured into our hearts to do the good work, to do the kingdom work, to follow the mission, to continue proclaiming your gospel, to continue making disciples. Lord, in doing all that which you have given us as a responsibility to accomplish. Fill our hearts with righteousness and with courage. We pray these things in the name of our risen King and Savior, Jesus Christ.